The subject for the evening talk is the empty way. As (coughs) primarily here, as Westerners, we have been born into this world in such a way that we have come to have, generally speaking, a particular view of what the bare actuality is of life. And this view is rather fixed with us. And sometimes, too, it seems virtually unshakable, to the degree that in the course of our everyday life and in the course of our normal interactions, we exist and we act from a particular view. And somewhat unfortunately, it seems rather self-evident. And I would say, to put it in a very general way, our relationship to the world is we act and live as though the world around us is something distinct, primarily sentient or insentient, and made of matter. And then there is separate from the world of forms and things, living and uh, not living, is the mind. And the mind is, though related, is distinct from it. And we may, in our relationship to the world, use our mind and our faculties to secure things from the world, or we may use the mind to get to know the world in a particular way. And so there is this living and continuity of living with the view of distinction and separation. And we think and act and believe in our relationship to life that, in fact, that's the way things actually are. And sometimes, with our mind, we recognize that we're projecting, and it's very, very subjective, our view of things, and, uh, or sometimes we recognize it's completely off the wall or off-center. And sometimes we begin to use the mind to try to see into the world. And it's as though at times we take the material world to be the real world and our mind is somehow simply um, a reflection of it, a mirror for it in some way or other, and doesn't have perhaps the same reality 
as the material world. And so we see that our mind seemingly changes in its views, opinions, perceptions, from one day to the next. And sometimes it remains constant. And all of that seems to establish our way of living, our way of viewing, our way of relating to the world. And of course with that in the scientific field there comes the view that accompanies it that if one can penetrate more and more into the material world, into the nature of energy, through that then the mind will know what the world really is. And this has become, for many, the established view, the established position. The moment that some doubts enter into this view with the separation and distinction of mind from the world, and experiences some doubt, there comes about for us the opportunity and an important opportunity to not only to doubt the validity of that but also to see what the alternatives are in terms of finding out what life really is. In that, in the spiritual and religious tradition, it is said, and it is said again and again, that as human beings, to know life, one must be a fit receptacle. One must be ready, inwardly, psychologically, deeply, if one is to know the way things are, and if one is to discover. And with that particular view, there comes about the establishing of what is called the way. And in that, we go from a position of where we actually are at this time and this juncture in our life and we work and develop and change ourselves in order to move to somewhere else which we sense or believe in some way or other is distinctly different from, from where we are. And when there is a commitment to that way, that commitment to it means that we draw upon the variety of resources which are available. And in the traditional language, and of course language is very important in these explorations, in the traditional language it is generally conceived of as the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, 
right effort, right samadhi, right awareness, right livelihood. In other words, that we bring to focus with regard to ourselves, our being, and we look at what basically in that formulation of language it covers all the major areas of our life in one way or another. And so then we might say, we look at ourselves, we're moving in a certain direction, we are calling this the path, and we might say that in that movement, if we use the word spiritual, we might say that is to become fully human. We might say, well, of course, anybody, whoever she or he is, is in fact already fully human. And no matter what a human being does, it is, of course, an expression of one's humanness. But within oneself, at the real experiential level, there is frequently a feeling and knowing of lack of fulfillment. And therefore one is saying of the path, the spiritual path, the way that it's a way towards fulfillment, complete fulfillment. And when that path is conceived of, with all the skillful means which are available, one, as it were, generates one's consciousness and one's interests and activities to meet, shall we say, the requirements of the path. And one is told that with that actual path, there is a goal. There is a distinct and clear affirmation from the text or from um, various people of past and present that there's a clear end to this path. And thus a certain form or move or change of language takes place from the path to the goal, from the path to finding the truth, from the path to enlightenment, from the path to finding God, to awakening or whatever. And one can use for that both the authority of the text, and it would be a brave person who would dismiss the Eightfold Path, dismiss the practices, dismiss the teachings, and effectively um, dismiss the message of the Buddha and sages of two and a half thousand years. And, and so there is this various affirmation which takes place, and as it were, a promise, spoken or unspoken, of the resolution or the fulfillment or the awakening of the human being. But the important thing with this is to see that, in fact, it is also, the path is also a structure of the mind. It's a particular adaption of the mind 
maybe in a thoughtful and caring and sensitive and intelligent way, but it's an, an adaption of the mind to a process which has been conceived of and has been proved in time to take one from one condition of consciousness to another. And the very affirmation of that by various in individuals encourages one to enter into the path and to go in the course of time from this to that. But it's all conceived of. And so sometimes a person begins to examine this and, and inquire into this and to inquire, well, what's my relationship to the path? And sometimes one hears <coughs> from the text or from others of a certain form of experience of being transformed or being born again or being enlightened or whatever. And naturally, for any mind <coughs> which is inquiring in one way or the other, the, po the possibility for that becomes attractive. And the very concept itself, in the course of time, for a person who is following the way, the very concept of freedom, God, truth, reality, or whatever, begins to take a certain charge. It begin, there's, begins to be certain feeli <coughs> feelings and associations and, and, and hopes and expectations. And frequently one is spurred, spurred to try harder, to reduce the time between where one is and this fulfillment, this liberation, this enlightenment. And so sometimes in the looking at that, that too becomes quite questionable. Questionable that at times a person feels and views things that, well, I've seen these, I've heard of these experiences, I've seen these people who have had these experiences or whatever, and sometimes, as some of us have, have come to the conclusion, the person was far brighter and clearer before the experience <laughs> than they were after <laughs> it. <laughs> and so, so sometimes there is this kind of magnet, the magnet of mind and the attraction towards something, to have something in some way or other which helps to confirm for oneself that all this trying and work and spiritual practices and so on and so forth really do have a validity to them. And generally we conceive of that by some experience which is noticeably more intense or dramatic to help confirm our efforts. There may be, for inquiry and for observation and to looking into these, this which one is committing oneself to, there may be a fading away of that involvement or interest in some <coughs> pr um, precious end which is somehow fulfilling. 
And it may be that one views it in such a way that one says, well, if there is an end, there's a limitation. There's a cut-off point in some way or other. And so the, the idea of goal and end may lose its interest as the understanding develops. And so one has there, one might say, two, again, conceived ways of looking at life and the reality of life. One is path with a goal, and another can be path and no goal, in which basically there is simply a process which is taking place, and this process is called spiritual insofar as it's leading to the full human humanity, the full potential be being realized and continuing to be realized. And both ways, path and goal, path and no goal, can seem to be valid ways of interpreting life, practice, human existence. And both of those are a distinct departure from the secularly conditioned mind which simply sees the world as a means for fulfilling personal wishes. But I wonder, with all of this conceiving, and all the, as it were, the logic of it, and the analysis which accompanies it, whether, whether or not it itself is something which is not so much viewed from totality, but is actually viewed from a way of looking at totality. And therefore, as it were, we're, we're moving and shaping our mind and all, one might say, the smallness of it to fit it into something larger. And there is still for us some distinction taking place. And so sometimes uh, in the movement and the uh, inquiry which is taking place, sometimes a person makes those distinctions which I referred to, or begins to come to the conclusion, well, perhaps the path and the process of actualizing and the goal, in so somehow or other, is the same thing. Like as I'm speaking of Krishnamurti yesterday evening, when, when he has used the, the phrase, the first step is the everlasting step. And so sometimes it can seem to be, and yet nothing particular is being conceived of, yet the various influences are there affecting how we observe, how we look, how we speak, how we act. But I wonder if that is also really the way things are. 
And so sometimes we find in our observation, in our, in our practice, that there is a necessity to stand back, to stand back from this conceiving mind and all that is implied with the conceiving mind. And in that, st in that standing back, the sense of path and goal are simply seen as a, a structure, convenient or uh, inconvenient, and then it comes more simple. It comes just bare actuality. It just comes to what's happening here and now and being with that. And the mind is saying, well, there's then there's obviously no path in that. There's no particular way. There is the, the observation. There is the, s the seeing of the relationship to what one observes. In that seeing of the relationship, sometimes it's reactive and distorts and perverts. Sometimes it's uh, clear and expresses an understanding. And one says, there's no way, there's no goal, there's no direction which can be conceived of. This is it. This is what's happening. And the mind, as it were, can come, understandably, when it's discarding path and goal conceptions, to just to that. And there's no attempt and no wish inside of the mind to go in a particular direction. And there is that mind which says, this is it. And to think of anything else bigger or smaller, um, beyond or near, is foolhardiness of spiritual thinking, foolhardiness of an uh, actualizing human. But I wonder, I wonder if we, if we do that, whether or not, <coughs> just as we, we are constrained by the interpretations of path and goal, whether just reducing things to what's happening here and now, and that's it, is also another kind of constraint, another kind of limitation. And sometimes in our looking and our, and our observation of the, of the here and now, we, when we fix it too strongly, we can, as <coughs> some of the uh, Eastern tra traditions ha ha have done, and perhaps rather unwisely, have spoken of the eternal now. You know, God is here and now. This is the absolute truth or whatever. And everything else is merely an image, a projection, a conception, and so forth. And so the, the mind focuses in its bareness on the present, and all is reduced just to that. And it's a peculiar phenomenon. And one of the almost quite tangible mysteries of life, that if one fully observes the present and stays in touch with it and has a, a great depth of samadhi, that means a, um, a depth of being and the stability which accompanies it, 
and an understanding of that dynamic of living on the face of this extraordinary earth in contact with life and reasonably free of the subjectivity and the interpretations. I wonder whether that is enough. And no one may have given up the, the idea, the conditioned idea, that the material world is the real thing and our mind is simply a, a, a kind of a subjective uh, mirror, doesn't have the same reality to it. And if one has, as it were, forsaken that idea and there's a, a balance of mind and the world and that the two are not distinct from each other. And that in that, even with awareness, understanding of the movements of life, the self-knowledge, you know that himself as I've referred to, the, just the concept which is used to describe the mental, physical life, and with a certain depth of being there, I wonder if that is enough. And one of the things which must indicate that and, and, and show that to us is that there will be the intimations through the inner listening which takes place of a certain unsatisfactoriness. No matter how well grounded the human being is and how well established in life and and how psychologically one is healthy and sensitive and humanized or spiritual, won't those intimations still touch through, touch through? And then the mind, what's it going to do? What's it going to do with itself? It sees, it, 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 it sees the, 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 the the living quandary that it is in. If it moves, if it moves just one direction, one thought, one tiny expression of something else, it's created a concept, it's created an idea, and when that's repeated a little bit, it establishes a path. In some way, it establishes a direction. It establishes something else other than what's right here and right now. And it creates that gap. And with that gap, there's all the time and therefore all the opportunity to somehow do something to help fill the gap. Or it waits. It looks at the present, it looks carefully into the present, it, it knows, the mind knows the complete futility of moving away from it to something else and all that is implied in that as a thought, as an idea. And so it stays with the present and it knows this isn't it. Not just as an idea, it knows it deeply. And so to stay has its own peculiarity of subtle but unsatisfactory. And to move away from and to create some alternative to it 
also has its own unsatisfactoriness. And the mind can neither stay nor go. Then what? And the Buddha's teaching, though using the relative and the conceptual and the conceived and so forth, is also the process and the way. Buddha meaning awakening, awakening mind. Also the way of negation. And what he says and what is, and is to be seen or known or discovered or whatever is that this, what is called dukkha, and the uh, and this unsatisfactoriness this, and suffering which can, can emerge, this very suffering, no matter how subtle it is, can be negated. So what, what, with, what with that are we to do? And so sometimes in the, the willingness of the inquiry and, and to going in, there is a, the, w- the willingness of heart and mind which says, well, perhaps it's neither this nor that. And that if the real freedom of life and the liberation and the truth in, of life isn't to be found in time. If it isn't to be in the present, which is the moment of time we're experiencing here and now, and if it isn't to be somewhere else, then there has to be the standing back from, neither this nor that. And the attitude of mind comes in, and it looks in that way, and it can experience in that way, and it can bring a kind of detachment from life which is beyond conceiving and beyond the considerations of the living present and anything else outside of it which has been conceived of. And one says, and one looks at this, and one looks carefully at this, and says, well, that must be, there must be freedom there, there must be, it must be beyond measure, etc. And it's the phenomena of heart and mind, of concerned and an inquiring person, that with each of these, whether it's that materialistic scientific view I earlier expressed, whether or not it's the path and the goal, whether or not it's just the path of human actualizing, whether or not it's just being here, whether or not it's just letting go, as it were, of the present and, and neither this nor that. Each one is a mode of looking. Each one has its own position to it. Each one can be validated through experiences, through insights, through understanding, and each one is subject to some kind of change. 
And it's as though in the very extraordinariness of life, and the extraordinariness of this universe which we are living in, that to actually take up a posture, somehow or other, the taking up a posture which can seem so real and valid and experiential and be authenticized by those that one considers one's peers or one's seniors or whatever, when one looks at all the positions, they all belong to a way of looking. And then perhaps when we speak of the the empty way, not only as the path, but the empty way of looking. And that any way of looking in what is being referred to is in itself its own limitation. And the very fact of this limitation always means there is this unsatisfactoriness with this limitation. And isn't that the whole story of our life? And then staying and going this or that. The very relativity of it, no matter how deep the experience is, the very relativity of it in fact, in truth, in reality, in limitlessness, negates it. All is utterly negated. All postures are utterly empty in truth. And thus it's one of the mysteries and marvels of life. That whether our mind moves or whether it doesn't, neither gives the revelation of limitlessness, neither negates that unsatisfactoriness at the subtle level. And in not attempting to negate the mind as a functioning instrument of life, not attempting to negate the world and the world's 
relationship to the mind. In knowing that the mind is movement and non-movement and that's its character just as much as the world shows itself as movement and non-movement, it doesn't have to be deceiving in any way. It doesn't have to be blind in any way. It doesn't have to be a view in any way that something is more real and something else is less real. It doesn't have to be an idea that conceiving is blinding or hindering in any way. It doesn't have to be the idea that the attitude and the way of looking is right or is wrong. And thus that limitlessness is truly limitless. And the mind cannot hinder, cannot obstruct, cannot obscure, no matter what we think. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings see. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.